Article 11 of the Defense of the Augsburg Confession by Philip Melanchthon. Translated by F. Bente and W. H. T. Dow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the Marriage of Priests. Augustana, 23. Despite the great infamy of their defiled celibacy, the adversaries have the presumption not only to defend the pontifical law by the wicked and false pretext of the divine name, but even to exhort the emperor and princes to the disgrace and infamy of the Roman Empire not to tolerate the marriage of priests, for thus they speak. Although the great, unheard of lewdness, fornication, and adultery among priests, monks, and so forth, at the great abbeys, in other churches and cloisters, has become so notorious throughout the world that people sing and talk about it, still the adversaries who have presented the confutation are so blind and without shame that they defend the law of the Pope by which marriage is prohibited, and that with the specious claim that they are defending a spiritual state. Moreover, although it would be proper for them to be heartily ashamed of the exceedingly shameful, lewd, abandoned, loose life of the wretches in their abbeys and cloisters, although on this account alone they should not have the courage to show their face in broad daylight, although their evil, restless heart and conscience ought to cause them to tremble, to stand aghast, and to be afraid to lift their eyes to our excellent emperor who loves uprightness. Still, they have the courage of the hangman. They act like the very devil, and like all reckless, wanton people, proceeding in blind defiance, and forgetful of all honor and decency. And these pure, chaste gentlemen dare to admonish his imperial majesty, the electors and princes, not to tolerate the marriage of priests, ad infamiam et ignominiam imperii, that is, to ward off shame and disgrace from the Roman Empire. For these are their words, as if their shameful life were a great honor and glory to the Church. What greater impudence has ever been read in any history than this of the adversaries? Such shameless advocates before a Roman emperor will not easily be found. If all the world did not know them, if many godly, upright people among them, their own canonical brethren, had not complained long ago of their shameful, lewd, indecent conduct, if their vile, abominable, ungodly, lewd, heathenish, epicurean life, and the dregs of all filthiness at Rome were not quite manifest, one might think that their great purity and their inviolate virgin chastity were the reason why they could not bear to hear the word woman, or marriage, pronounced and why they baptize holy matrimony, which the Pope himself calls a sacrament, in famiam imperii. For the arguments which they use we shall afterwards review. Now let the wise reader consider this, namely, what shame these good-for-nothing men have, who say that marriages, which the Holy Scriptures praise most highly and command, produce infamy and disgrace to the government, as though, indeed, this public infamy of flagitious and unnatural lusts, which glow among these very holy fathers, who feign that they are curii, and live like bacchanals, were a great ornament to the church. And most things which these men do with the greatest license cannot even be named without a breach of modesty. And these their lusts they ask you to defend with your chaste right hand, Emperor Charles, whom even certain ancient predictions name as the king of modest face. For the saying appears concerning you, One modest in face shall reign everywhere. 
For they ask that, contrary to divine law, contrary to the law of nations, contrary to the canons of councils, you sunder marriages, in order to impose merely for the sake of marriage atrocious punishments upon innocent men, to put to death priests, whom even barbarians reverently spare, to drive into exile banished women and fatherless children. Such laws they bring to you, most excellent and most chaste emperor, to which no barbarity, however monstrous and cruel, could lend its ear. But because the stain of no disgrace or cruelty falls upon your character, we hope that you will deal with us mildly in this matter, especially when you have learned that we have the weightiest reasons for our belief, derived from the word of God, to which the adversaries opposed the most trifling and vain opinions. And, nevertheless, they do not seriously defend celibacy, for they are not ignorant how few there are who practice chastity, but they stick to that comforting saying which is found in their treatise, Si non caste tamen caute, if not chastely, at least cautiously. And they devise a sham of religion for their dominion, which they think that celibacy profits, in order that we may understand Peter to have been right in admonishing, Second Peter 2.1, that there will be false teachers who will deceive men with feigned words. For the adversaries say, write, or do nothing truly, their words are merely an argument ad hominem, frankly and candidly in this entire case, but they actually contend only concerning the dominion which they falsely think to be imperiled, and which they endeavor to fortify with a wicked pretense of godliness. They support their case with nothing but impious, hypocritical lies. Accordingly, it will endure about as well as butter exposed to the sun. We cannot approve this law concerning celibacy, which the adversaries defend, because it conflicts with divine and natural law, and is at variance with the very canons of the councils. And that it is superstitious and dangerous is evident, for it produces infinite scandals, sins, and corruption of public morals, as is seen in the real towns of priests, or, as they are called, their residences. Our other controversies need some discussion by the doctors. In this, the subject is so manifest to both parties that it requires no discussion. It only requires, as judge, a man that is honest and fears God. And although the manifest truth is defended by us, yet the adversaries have devised certain reproaches for satirizing our arguments. First, Genesis 1.28 teaches that men were created to be fruitful, and that one sex in a proper way should desire the other. For we are speaking not of concupiscence, which is sin, but of that appetite which has to have been in nature in its integrity, which would have existed in nature even if it had remained uncorrupted, which they call physical love. And this love of one sex for the other is truly a divine ordinance. But since this ordinance of God cannot be removed without an extraordinary work of God, it follows that the right to contract marriage cannot be removed by statutes or vows. The adversaries cavil at these arguments. They say that in the beginning the commandment was given to replenish the earth, but that now, since the earth has been replenished, marriage is not commanded. See how wisely they judge. The nature of men is so formed by the word of God that it is fruitful not only in the beginning of the creation, but as long as this nature of our bodies will exist, just as the earth becomes fruitful by the word, Genesis 1.11, let the earth bring forth grass yielding seed. Because of this ordinance, 
the earth not only commenced in the beginning to bring forth plants, but the fields are clothed every year as long as this natural order will exist. Therefore, just as by human laws the nature of the earth cannot be changed, so without a special work of God the nature of a human being can be changed neither by vows nor by human law, that a woman should desire a man, nor a man a woman. Secondly, and because this creation or divine ordinance in man is a natural right, jurists have accordingly said wisely and correctly that the union of male and female belongs to natural right. But since natural right is immutable, the right to contract marriage must always remain. For where nature does not change, that ordinance also with which God has endowed nature does not change, and cannot be removed by human laws. Therefore it is ridiculous for the adversaries to prate that marriage was commanded in the beginning, but is not now. This is the same as if they would say, Formerly, when men were born, they brought with them sex, now they do not. Formerly, when they were born, they brought with them natural right, now they do not. No craftsman, Faber, could produce anything more crafty than these absurdities, which were devised to elude a right of nature. Therefore, let this remain in the case which both Scripture teaches and the jurist says wisely, namely, that the union of male and female belongs to natural right. Moreover, a natural right is truly a divine right, because it is an ordinance divinely impressed upon nature. But inasmuch as this right cannot be changed without an extraordinary work of God, it is necessary that the right to contract marriage remains, because the natural desire of sex for sex is an ordinance of God in nature, and for this reason is a right. Otherwise, why would both sexes have been created? And we are speaking as it has been said above, not of concupiscence, which is sin, but of that desire which they call physical love, which would have existed between man and woman even though their nature had remained pure, which concupiscence is not removed from nature but inflames, so that now it has greater need of a remedy. And marriage is necessary not only for the sake of procreation, but also as a remedy to guard against sins. These things are clear and so well established that they can in no way be overthrown. Thirdly, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. This, now, is an express command pertaining to all who are not fit for celibacy. The adversaries ask that a commandment be shown them which commands priests to marry, as though priests are not men. We judge, indeed, that the things which we maintain concerning human nature in general pertain also to priests. Does not Paul here command those who have not the gift of continence to marry? For he interprets himself a little after when he says, 7.9, It is better to marry than to burn. And Christ has clearly said, Matthew 19.11, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. Because now, since sin since the fall of Adam, these two things concur, namely, natural appetite and concupiscence which inflames the natural appetite, so that now there is more need of marriage than in nature in its integrity. Paul accordingly speaks of marriage as a remedy, and on account of these flames commands to marry. Neither can any human authority, any law, any vows remove this declaration. It is better to marry than to burn 
because they do not remove the nature or concupiscence. Therefore all who burn retain the right to marry. By this commandment of Paul, to avoid fornication let every man have his own wife, all are held bound who do not truly keep themselves continent, the decision concerning which pertains to the conscience of each one. For as they here give the command to seek continence of God, and to weaken the body by labors and hunger, why do they not proclaim these magnificent commandments to themselves? But as we have said above, the adversaries are only plain. They are doing nothing seriously. If continence were possible to all, it would not require a peculiar gift. But Christ shows that it has need of a peculiar gift. Therefore it does not belong to all. God wishes the rest to use the common law of nature which he has instituted. For God does not wish his ordinances, his creations, to be despised. He wishes men to be chaste in this way, that they use the remedy divinely presented, just as he wishes to nourish our life in this way, that we use food and drink. Gerson also testifies that there have been many good men who endeavored to subdue the body, and yet made little progress. Accordingly, Ambrose is right in saying, Virginity is only a thing that can be recommended, but not commanded. It is a matter of a vow rather than a precept. If anyone here would raise the objection that Christ praises those which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, Matthew 19.12, let him also consider this, that he is praising such as have the gift of continence. For on this account he adds, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. For an impure continence, such as there is in monasteries and cloisters, does not please Christ. We also praise true continence. But now we are disputing concerning the law, and concerning those who do not have the gift of continence. The matter ought to be left free, and snares ought not to be cast upon the weak through this law. Fourthly, the pontifical law differs also from the canons of the councils. For the ancient canons do not prohibit marriage, neither do they dissolve marriages that have been contracted, even if they remove from the administration of their office those who have contracted them in the ministry. At those times this dismissal was an act of kindness rather than a punishment. But the new canons, which have not been framed in the synods, but have been made according to the private judgment of the popes, both prohibit the contraction of marriage and dissolve them when contracted, and this is to be done openly, contrary to the command of Christ, Matthew 19.6, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. In the confutation, the advisers exclaim that celibacy has been commanded by the councils. We do not find fault with the decrees of the councils, for under a certain condition these allow marriage. But we find fault with the laws which, since the ancient synods, the popes of Rome have framed contrary to the authority of the synods. The popes despise the authority of the synods, just as much as they wish it to appear holy to others, under peril of God's wrath and eternal damnation. Therefore this law concerning perpetual celibacy is peculiar to this new pontifical despotism. Nor is it without a reason. For Daniel 11.37 ascribes to the kingdom of Antichrist this mark, namely, the contempt of women. Fifthly, although the adversaries do not defend the law because of superstition, not because of its sanctity as from ignorance, since they see that it is not generally observed, 
Nevertheless, they diffuse superstitious opinions, while they give a pretext of religion. They claim that they require celibacy because it is purity, as though marriage were impurity and a sin, or as though celibacy merited justification more than does marriage. And to this end they cite the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law, because, since under the law the priests at the time of ministering were separated from their wives, the priest in the New Testament, inasmuch as he ought always to pray, ought always to practice continence. This silly comparison is presented as a proof which should compel priests to perpetual celibacy, although indeed in this very comparison marriage is allowed. Only in the time of ministering its use is interdicted. And it is one thing to pray, another to minister. The saints prayed even when they did not exercise the public ministry, nor did conjugal intercourse hinder them from praying. But ye shall reply in order to these figments. In the first place, it is necessary for the adversaries to acknowledge this, namely, that in believers marriage is pure, because it has been sanctified by the word of God, that is, it is a matter that is permitted and approved by the word of God, as Scripture abundantly testifies. For Christ calls marriage a divine union, when he says, Matthew 19.6, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Here Christ says that the married people are joined together by God. Accordingly, it is a pure, holy, noble, praiseworthy work of God. And Paul says of marriage, of meats and similar things, 1 Timothy 4.5, it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer, that is, by the word by which consciences become certain that God approves, and by prayer, that is, by faith, which uses it with thanksgiving as a gift of God. Likewise, 1 Corinthians 7.14, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and so forth, that is, the use of marriage is permitted and holy on account of faith in Christ, just as it is permitted to use meat, and so forth. Likewise, 1 Timothy 2.15, She shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith, and so forth. If the adversaries could produce such a passage concerning celibacy, then indeed they would celebrate a wonderful triumph. Paul says that woman is saved by childbearing, what more honorable could be said against the hypocrisy of celibacy than that woman is saved by the conjugal works themselves, by conjugal intercourse, by bearing children, and the other duties? But what does St. Paul mean? Let the reader observe that faith is added, and that domestic duties without faith are not praised. If they continue, he says, in faith. For he speaks of the whole class of mothers, therefore he requires especially faith, that they should have God's word and be believing, by which woman receives the remission of sins and justification. Then he adds a particular work of the calling, just as in every man a good work of a particular calling ought to follow faith. This work pleases God on account of faith. Thus the duties of the woman please God on account of faith, and the believing woman is saved who in such duties devoutly serves her calling. These testimonies teach that marriage is a lawful, a holy, and Christian thing. If, therefore, purity signifies that which is allowed and approved before God, marriages are pure, because they have been approved by the word of God. And Paul says of lawful things, Titus 1.15, Unto the pure all things are pure, that is, to those who believe in Christ and are righteous by faith. 
Therefore, as virginity is impure in the godless, so in the godly marriage is pure on account of the word of God and faith. Again, if purity is properly opposed to concupiscence, it signifies purity of heart, that is, mortified concupiscence, because the law does not prohibit marriage, but concupiscence, adultery, fornication. Therefore celibacy is not purity. For there may be greater purity of heart in a married man, as in Abraham or Jacob, than in most of those who are truly continent, who, even according to bodily purity, really maintain their chastity. Lastly, if they understand that celibacy is purity in the sense that it merits justification more than does marriage, we most emphatically contradict it. For we are justified neither on account of virginity nor on account of marriage, but freely, for Christ's sake, when we believe that for his sake God is propitious to us. Here perhaps they will exclaim that, according to the manner of Jovinian, marriage is made equal to virginity. But on account of such clamors we shall not reject the truth concerning the righteousness of faith, which we have explained above. Nevertheless, we do not make virginity and marriage equal. For just as one gift surpasses another, as prophecy surpasses eloquence, the science of military affairs surpasses agriculture, and eloquence surpasses architecture, so virginity is a more excellent gift than marriage. And nevertheless, just as an orator is not more righteous before God because of his eloquence than an architect because of his skill in architecture, so a virgin does not merit justification by virginity more than a married person merits it by conjugal duties. But each one ought faithfully to serve in his own gift, and to believe that for Christ's sake he receives the remission of sins, and by faith is accounted righteous before God. Neither does Christ or Paul praise virginity because it justifies, but because it is freer and less distracted with domestic occupations, in praying, teaching, writing, serving. For this reason Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7.32, He that is unmarried careth for the things which belong to the Lord. Virginity, therefore, is praised on account of meditation and study. Thus Christ does not simply praise those who make themselves eunuchs, but adds, for the kingdom of heaven's sake, that is, that they may have leisure to learn or teach the gospel. For he does not say that virginity merits the remission of sins or salvation. To the examples of the Levitical priests, we have replied that they do not establish the duty of imposing perpetual celibacy upon the priests. Furthermore, the Levitical impurities are not to be transferred to us. The law of Moses, with the ceremonial statutes concerning what is clean or unclean, do not at all concern us Christians. Then, intercourse contrary to the law was an impurity. Now it is not an impurity, because Paul says, Titus 1.15, Unto the pure all things are pure. For the gospel frees us from these Levitical impurities, from all the ceremonies of Moses, and not alone from the laws concerning uncleanness. And if anyone defends the law of celibacy with the design to burden consciences by these Levitical observances, we must strive against this, just as the apostles in Acts 15.10 and following strove against those who required circumcision and endeavored to impose the law of Moses upon Christians. Yet in the meanwhile, good men will know how to control the use of marriage, especially when they are occupied with public offices, 
which often, indeed, give good men so much labor as to expel all domestic thoughts from their minds. For to be burdened with great affairs and transactions, which concern commonwealths and nations, governments and churches, is a good remedy to keep the old Adam from lustfulness. Good men know also this, that Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, commands that every one possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. They know likewise that they must sometimes retire, in order that there may be leisure for prayer. But Paul does not wish this to be perpetual, 1 Corinthians 7.5. Now, such continence is easy to those who are good and occupied, but this great crowd of unemployed priests, which is in the fraternities, cannot afford, in this voluptuousness, even this Levitical continence, as the facts show. On the other hand, what sort of chastity can there be among so many thousands of monks and priests who live without worry in all manner of delights, being idle and full, and moreover have not the word of God, do not learn it, and have no regard for it? Such conditions bring on all manner of inchastity. Such people can observe neither Levitical nor perpetual chastity, and the lines are well known. The boy accustomed to pursue a slothful life hates those who are busy. Many heretics, understanding the law of Moses incorrectly, have treated marriage with contempt, for whom nevertheless celibacy has gained extraordinary admiration. And Epiphanius complains that by this commendation especially the Encratites captured the minds of the unwary. They abstained from wine even in the Lord's Supper. They abstained from the flesh of all animals, in which they surpassed the Dominican brethren who live upon fish. They abstained also from marriage, and just this gained the chief admiration. These works, these services, they thought, merited grace more than the use of wine and flesh, and than marriage, which seemed to be a profane and unclean matter, and which scarcely could please God, even though it were not altogether condemned. Paul to the Colossians 2.18 greatly disapproves these angelic forms of worship. For when men believe that they are pure and righteous on account of such hypocrisy, they suppress the knowledge of Christ, and suppress also the knowledge of God's gifts and commandments. For God wishes us to use His gifts in a godly way. And we might mention examples where certain godly consciences were greatly disturbed on account of the lawful use of marriage. This evil was derived from the opinions of monks superstitiously praising celibacy, and proclaiming the married estate as a life that would be a great obstacle to salvation and full of sins. Nevertheless, we do not find fault with temperance or continence, but we have said above that exercises and mortifications of the body are necessary. We indeed deny that confidence should be placed in certain observances as though they made righteous. And Epiphanius has elegantly said that these observances ought to be praised, that is, for restraining the body, or on account of public morals, just as certain rites were instituted for instructing the ignorant, and not as services to justify. But it is not through superstition that our adversaries require celibacy, for they know that chastity is not ordinarily rendered, that at Rome, also in all their monasteries, there is nothing but undisguised, unconcealed inchastity. Nor do they seriously intend to lead chaste lives, but knowingly practice hypocrisy before the people. But they feign superstitious opinions, so as to delude the ignorant, 
They are therefore more worthy of hatred than the Encratites, who seem to have erred by show of religion. These Sardanapali, Epicureans, designedly misuse the pretext of religion. Sixthly, although we have so many reasons for disapproving the law of perpetual celibacy, yet besides these dangers to souls and public scandals also are added, which, even though the law were not unjust, ought to deter good men from approving such a burden as has destroyed innumerable souls. For a long time all good men, their own bishops and canons, have complained of this burden, either on their own account or on account of others whom they saw to be in danger. But no popes give ear to these complaints. Neither is it doubtful how greatly injurious to public morals this law is, and what vices and shameful lusts it has produced. The Roman satires are extant. In these Rome still recognizes and reads its own morals. Thus God avenges the contempt of his own gift and ordinance in those who prohibit marriage. But since the custom in regard to other laws was that they should be changed if manifest utility would advise it, why is the same not done with respect to this law, in which so many weighty reasons concur, especially in these last times, why a change ought to be made? Nature is growing old and is gradually becoming weaker, and vices are increasing. Wherefore, the remedies divinely given should have been employed. We see what vice it was which God denounced before the flood, what he denounced before the burning of the five cities. Similar vices have preceded the destruction of many other cities, as of Sybaris and Rome. And in these there has been presented an image of the times which will be next to the end of things. Accordingly, at this time, marriage ought to have been especially defended by the most severe laws and warning examples, and men ought to have been invited to marriage. This duty pertains to the magistrates, who ought to maintain public discipline. God has now so blinded the world that adultery and fornication are permitted almost without punishment. On the contrary, punishment is inflicted on account of marriage. Is not this terrible to hear? Meanwhile, the teachers of the gospel should do both. They should exhort incontinent men to marriage, and should exhort others not to despise the gift of continence. The popes daily dispense and daily change other laws which are most excellent. Yet in regard to this one law of celibacy, they are as iron, and inexorable, although indeed it is manifest that this is simply of human right. And they are now making this law more grievous in many ways. The canon bids them suspend priests. These rather unfriendly interpreters suspend them not from office, but from trees. They cruelly kill many men for nothing but marriage. It is to be feared, therefore, that the blood of Abel will cry to heaven so loudly as not to be endured, and that we shall have to tremble like Cain. And these very parasites show that this law is a doctrine of demons. For since the devil is a murderer, he defends his law by these parasites. We know that there is some offense in regard to schism, because we seem to have separated from those who are thought to be regular bishops. But our consciences are very secure, since we know that, though we most earnestly desire to establish harmony, we cannot please the adversaries unless we cast away manifest truth, and then agree with these very men in being willing to defend this unjust law, to dissolve marriages that have been contracted, to put to death priests if they do not obey, to drive poor women and fatherless children into exile. 
But since it is well established that these conditions are displeasing to God, we can in no way grieve that we have no alliance with the multitude of murderers among the adversaries. We have explained the reasons why we cannot assent with a good conscience to the adversaries when they defend the pontifical law concerning perpetual celibacy, because it conflicts with divine and natural law, and is at variance with the canons themselves, and is superstitious and full of danger, and lastly, because the whole affair is insincere. For the law is enacted not for the sake of religion, not for holiness's sake, or because they do not know better. They know very well that everybody is well acquainted with the condition of the great cloisters, which we are able to name, but for the sake of dominion, and this is wickedly given the pretext of religion. Neither can anything be produced by sane men against these most firmly established reasons. The gospel allows marriage to those to whom it is necessary. Nevertheless, it does not compel those to marry who can be continent, provided they be truly continent. We hold that this liberty should also be conceded to the priests. Nor do we wish to compel any one by force to celibacy, nor to dissolve marriages that have been contracted. We have also indicated incidentally, while we have recounted our arguments, how the adversaries cavil at several of these, and we have explained away these false accusations. Now we shall relate as briefly as possible with what important reasons they defend the law. First, they say that it has been revealed by God. You see the extreme impudence of these sorry fellows. They dare to affirm that the law of perpetual celibacy has been divinely revealed, although it is contrary to manifest testimonies of Scripture, which command that to avoid fornication each one should have his own wife, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, which likewise forbid to dissolve marriages that have been contracted, compare Matthew 5, 32, 19, 6, 1 Corinthians 7, 27. What can the knaves say in reply? and how dare they wantonly and shamelessly misapply the great, most holy name of the divine majesty. Paul reminds us what an author such a law was to have when he calls it a doctrine of demons. 1 Timothy 4.1 And the fruits show their author, namely, so many monstrous lusts and so many murders which are now committed under the pretext of that law, as can be seen at Rome. The second argument of the adversaries is that the priests ought to be pure, according to Isaiah 52.11, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. And they cite many things to this effect. This reason which they display, we have above removed as especially specious. For we have said that virginity without faith is not purity before God, and marriage on account of faith is pure, according to Titus 1.15, Unto the pure all things are pure. We have said also this, that outward purity and the ceremonies of the law are not to be transferred hither, because the gospel requires purity of heart, and does not require the ceremonies of the law. And it may occur that the heart of a husband, as of Abraham or Jacob, who were polygamists, is purer and burns less with lusts than that of many virgins who are even truly continent. But what Isaiah says, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord, ought to be understood as referring to cleanness of heart and to the entire repentance. Besides, the saints will know, in the exercise of marriage, how far it is profitable to restrain its use, and, as Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.4, 4, to possess his vessel in sanctification. Lastly, 
Since marriage is pure, it is rightly said to those who are not continent in celibacy that they should marry wives in order to be pure. Thus the same law, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord, commands that impure celibates become pure husbands, impure unmarried priests become pure married priests. The third argument is horrible, namely, that the marriage of priests is the heresy of Jovinian. Fine-sounding words. Pity on our poor souls, dear sirs, proceed gently. This is a new crime, that marriage which God instituted in paradise is a heresy. In that case, all the world would be children of heretics. In the time of Jovinian, the world did not as yet know the law concerning perpetual celibacy. This our adversaries know very well. Therefore it is an impudent falsehood that the marriage of priests is the heresy of Jovinian, or that such marriage was then condemned by the church. In such passages we can see what design the adversaries had in writing the confutation. They judged that the ignorant would be thus most easily excited, if they would frequently hear the reproach of heresy, if they pretend that our cause has been dispatched and condemned by many previous decisions of the church. Thus they frequently cite falsely the judgment of the church. Because they are not ignorant of this, they were unwilling to exhibit to us a copy of their apology, lest this falsehood and these reproaches might be exposed. Our opinion, however, as regards the case of Jovinian, concerning the comparison of virginity and marriage, we have expressed above. For we do not make marriage and virginity equal, although neither virginity nor marriage merits justification. By such false arguments they defend a law that is godless and destructive to good morals. By such reasons they set the minds of princes firmly against God's judgment. The princes and bishops who believe this teaching will see whether their reasons will endure the test when the hour of death arrives, in which God will call them to account as to why they have dissolved marriages, and why they have tortured, flogged, and impaled and killed priests, regardless of the cries, wails, and tears of so many widows and orphans. For do not doubt, but that, as the blood of dead Abel cried out, Genesis 4.10, so the blood of many good men, against whom they have unjustly raged, will also cry out, and God will avenge this cruelty. There you will discover how empty are these reasons of the adversaries, and you will perceive that in God's judgments no calumnies against God's word remain standing. As Isaiah says, 46, All flesh is grass, and all the godliness thereof is as the flower of the field, that their arguments are straw and hay, and God a consuming fire, before whom nothing but God's word can abide. 1 Peter 1.24 Whatever may happen, our princes will be able to console themselves with the consciousness of right counsels, because even though the priests would have done wrong in contracting marriages, yet this disruption of marriages, these proscriptions, and this cruelty are manifestly contrary to the will and word of God. Neither does novelty or dissent delight our princes, but especially in a manner that is not doubtful, more regard had to be paid to the word of God than to all other things. End of Article 11